I want to invite you to please bow your heads and to pray with me. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we give you thanks that you have set aside this time and this place to meet with us. And through your word to teach us, to teach us about your love, to teach us what it means to be uh, a part of your family. And so God, we pray that you would uh, give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us this morning. And God, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said at the very beginning of the service, we're in this series called Jesus Walks Into a Bar, in which we're imagining Jesus sitting down and talking with people who are maybe of different religious or spiritual backgrounds. And we're doing this because of the fact that we do live in a religiously and spiritually diverse country. And religion is often one of those subjects, like politics, that's hard to talk about. That there are a lot of emotions, especially when there are issues of difference or disagreement. But one of the things that we believe as a church is that were Jesus in those conversations, were Jesus to sit down with people from different backgrounds, that those conversations would go drastically differently. That those conversations would be characterized by love, by understanding, but they would also be honest. That they would really wrestle with issues of the truth as they try to determine, well, who is God? What does it mean to have a relationship with him? And so we've been going throughout this because of the fact that living in a religiously diverse world, we need to recognize that people of different religions aren't just those uh, living in far-flung countries, but these are our neighbors, these are our friends, these are our co-workers, these are our family members. And so our question is, how can we as a church really be about entering into those kinds of discussions with humility, with love, with grace, and with truth? And as we've been going throughout this series, we've been looking at different world's religions. And we kind of started off with those religious traditions that are very different from our own. We were looking at Hinduism and Buddhism. And then last week, we kind of got a little bit closer to home when we looked at Islam. Islam being a religion that does believe there is only one God and that he is the all-powerful creator of all things. But this week, we come even closer to home as we take a closer look at the religion of Judaism. Because the truth is, is that there are many uh, Jewish people here in the United States. They, too, are our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends. But also, the, fact, the reality is, is that Christianity and Judaism, we share a lot in common. In fact, if you just look at our scriptures, what you quickly realize is that 75% of our scriptures are shared with those of the Jewish faith. That this Bible in my hand, 75% of it aligns with what Jewish people read and study and, and pray when they gather together in synagogue. We call it the Old Testament. They simply call it the Bible. And so we share this scripture in common, but we also share some certain theological beliefs in common. We believe that there is one all-powerful God of the universe who created all things, that he made human beings in his image, and that he is a God who has been active and at work throughout human history, revealing his character and his love, his justice, and his mercy to people in time and in space. That in fact, if you read through the Old Testament scriptures, that's what you see. You see a God who is actively in relationship with his people. We have that in common. But there are also some big areas of difference. And it's no surprise that there are areas of difference because Judaism, like many of the other religions that we've been studying, is a very, very diverse faith tradition. 
that it's not so simple to talk about Judaism as if it's one thing, because the truth is, is that there's a variety of diversity within this faith community. In fact, a Pew Research Forum noted that there are approximately 5.3 million Jews in the United States, and this includes Jewish people of a variety of different denominations, that there are those who are Orthodox, conservative, reform, and then there, this was a statistic that surprised me, that one in five Jews say that they're not religious at all. They would consider themselves culturally Jewish, but not really religiously observant. And we want to keep that in mind as we're going throughout this, uh, this message today, because as the um, Jewish uh, scholar of religion, Jacob Neusner, said, he said that while Judaism is not the religion of a single people, most Jews are a people with a single religion. His point simply being that there's a lot of diversity in this big tent that we call Judaism. So what does kind of hold the Jewish community together? Well, in uh, his book, Essential Judaism, George Robinson puts it this way. He says that Judaism is like a three-legged stool. Upholding it are three kinds of sacredness, sacred space, sacred time, and sacred humanity. Sacred space, sacred time, and sacred humanity. He says that being Jewish is really a way of life. And that whether you're an Orthodox Jew or a secular Jew, there are certain rhythms and traditions and rituals that kind of bind you, your, uh, your identity together with those of your community, with the Jewish community. He talks about sacred uh, space. He says the rhythms, the festivals, the holidays, the holiday celebrations of the Jewish community, that even for those who would say they're not religiously observant, they will still celebrate these holidays kind of because it's a part of their culture, a part of their history. He said that there's also sacred time, and that means that, that as a community, they commemorate certain important life events, important life events like the birth of a child, like entering into adulthood, like marriage, and like death and passing. And lastly, he says sacred humanity. What he means by that is he says living a moral life matters to the Jewish community. Now, for an Orthodox uh, person who's an Orthodox Jew, what that would mean is that they would follow all 613 of the laws that were given to Moses found in the Torah, those 613 mitzvot. They would try to hold those and, and observe those strictly. What that might mean, though, for like a secular Jewish person was, would simply mean living a moral life, living in service to the greater causes of humanity. But these three things kind of hold the Jewish identity together. It's a common history, common language, common culture, common rituals, and so on and so forth. What it simply means is Judaism is far more than just a religion. It really is a way of life. And as a result, you know, the Jewish people have our right to be proud, to be proud of their heritage, to be proud of their language, to be proud of their faith. And so the question that we want to ask today is, what kinds of conversations would Jesus have with those of the Jewish community? Because the truth is, is relationships between Christians and Jews down through the centuries, they have been tense. They have been strained. There have been horrible atrocities committed in the name of religion, oftentimes on the part of Christians against the Jewish community. And so we, as Christians today who say we follow Jesus, we really want to wrestle with, how would Jesus, though, actually interact with this community? And the good news is, is that we have plenty of examples of Jesus talking with his fellow Jews throughout Scripture. That's where he did the majority of his ministry, was in ancient Israel, among his fellow Jews. I mean, Jesus himself was born into a Jewish family. He was raised knowing all those Old Testament Scriptures. 
And so we want to ask, how would he enter into conversation with his neighbors, with his friends, with his own family? And so to help us understand that and see how we might model our own relationships off of that, I want us to take a look at John's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It's here in this story that we encounter a man named Nicodemus. It says that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God was with him. See, the first thing that we learn about Nicodemus is that he's actually curious, that he's been watching Jesus and he's kind of perplexed, but also drawn to Jesus. Because on the one hand, he sees Jesus doing some pretty remarkable things. First and foremost, he's healing people. He's performing miracles. But he also hears Jesus teaching and preaching. And some of the things that Jesus says kind of make sense to him. They say, yeah, that's what we believe as God's people, as the people of Israel. But then Jesus is also doing some really provocative things. In fact, right before this incident, Jesus had gone into the temple and he had driven all the money changers who were gathered there out of the temple saying that this is a house of prayer. It says, my father's house is a house of prayer. Now, these money changers, they were there selling animals so that people could perform their, their ritual sacrifices at the temple. And here's Jesus kind of doing a full-on physical assault against that entire practice and then claiming some really bizarre things, saying, my father's house is a house of prayer. And so Nicodemus is like, there are things about Jesus that, that really appeal to me, that really make sense to me. But then there's other things where it looks like he's attacking our very way of life. Like he's attacking our community, like he's disowning his own people. And so Nicodemus kind of comes to him at night. He kind of comes to him on his own because he wants to sort this out. He wants to really know, Jesus, what are you really all about? There's a couple other things that we know about Nicodemus. The first thing that we know about Nicodemus is that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. What that means is that if he were living today, he would probably be an Orthodox Jew. It means that he would take those 613 commandments that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, and he would have been trying to live those out in his daily life. He would be trying to follow all those commandments to the letter. He is a very, very pious and religious person. But the second thing we learn about him is we learn that he's actually a member of the Jewish ruling council. This means that he is a man of, uh, who is a leader in his community, a man who's respected, that people look up to. He, he, as a member of the Sanhedrin of that ruling council, would have been in charge of passing laws about how people conduct themselves in worship at the temple and, and how they live in community with one another and what they do in synagogue when they gather on the Sabbath. Third thing we learn about him is that he's a rabbi. Jesus later on in this passage calls him a teacher of Israel. That means that it was his job to know the scriptures forwards and backwards. He knows his scriptures well, and it would have been his job to to pass the faith on to the next generation to help raise children in their Jewish identity, to be proud of that, but also to train other men who wanted to become rabbis. So who, what we're talking about is we're talking, we're talking about a man who is, who is thoroughly through and through a, a Jewish. For him, being Jewish isn't just a label. It's his way of living. It's the way in which he lives out his faith and his life. It, it means a great deal to him, and he's well-educated in it. And so he comes to Jesus, and he wants to know, what are you really all about? 
And Jesus responds with some really quite confusing and provocative words. Jesus t- uh, responds to Nicodemus's greeting by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, we listen to that response, and that is really, it seems to us, a very bizarre response. I mean, being separated from Jesus and Nicodemus's day by 2,000 years, and being separated from their culture by our own kind of Western American culture, this just seems like a weird way for Jesus to start to get into a conversation with Nicodemus. He's talking about being born again in the kingdom of God. What does that even mean? But we have to listen to Jesus with Nicodemus' ears because what Jesus is saying is so provocative, it almost sounds like he's about to pick a fight with Nicodemus. Because when he talks about the kingdom of God, you see for the people of Israel, what, what the kingdom of God was, is it was, it was anywhere where God's rule and God's reign was being followed and observed. They believed that God alone was Lord over the universe, and so the kingdom of God was anywhere where his lordship was being followed and obeyed by his people. So when you said kingdom of God, they immediately thought Israel. They thought themselves, because they were the ones who were following all 613 of those commandments, who were observing God's rules and laws. So to be a part of the kingdom of God was to be Jewish. And Jesus is saying, You can't even enter into the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. And you can understand how Nicodemus, this really pious guy, would be like, what? We're the kingdom of God. What are you talking about? But then he says you have to be born again. And again, this was a phrase that was actually used back in their day. But it referred to a very uh, specific group of people. It referred to those who wanted to join the Jewish community who by birth were not Jewish. It was those who were pagans, who were Gentiles, who wanted to follow the God of Israel and who wanted to join the Jewish community. And so to join the Jewish community, you had to go through sometimes years of instruction in what it meant to actually be Jewish. You'd have to learn the language and the scriptures and the rituals, all those things that we talked about at the beginning of the message. And then finally, after you underwent certain rituals and certain rites, you were welcomed into the Jewish community. And that was a big day of celebration. And they would often talk about these new converts as those who have been born again. They've become new people because they've joined Israel. They've joined the people of God. So here's Nicodemus, a very observant Jewish man, a ruler among his people. And Jesus says, hey, Nicodemus, you too need to be born again in order to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, Are, excuse me? Like, really? Do you know, you know you're talking? Maybe Jesus didn't get this right. Maybe, maybe he's being literal here. And you can almost hear how confused Nicodemus is because he goes on, he says, oh, well, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? It's almost like Nicodemus is saying, I'm not sure I, I heard you right. Maybe you literally meant being born again. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't leave it there. Jesus says, no, 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 I I do mean you have to be born again. And let me explain. Because he goes on again and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says what being born again means is you means you have to be born of water and the spirit. And again, we sitting here 2000 years later, like, okay, another bizarre response. But not for Nicodemus, not for a man who was a rabbi, not for a man who knew his scriptures, because these images of water and the Spirit appear at other places in the Old Testament. 
And one particular place where they appear together is right here in Ezekiel chapter 36. See, the prophet Ezekiel, speaking on behalf of God, says this to the people of Israel. God said to Israel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's from Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-five to 27. So what Jesus says, is, he says, no, Nicodemus, I do mean that. And in fact, if you look back at our scriptures, if you look back at what God says in the Torah and in the writings and in the prophets, you realize that even the people of Israel need to be washed with water and the spirit. Even the people who have received God's revelation, who have received his laws, need to have something more happen in their hearts. They need to be washed through water and the spirit. They need to be born again. See, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is he's saying, look, if you're counting on either your pedigree or your moral performance, that's just not enough. There's a far deeper issue that needs to be dealt with in your heart and in your life. Because that's one thing to be proud of your culture and your heritage and your language, but that is nowhere to pin your eternal hope. He's saying, yes, even the people of Israel need to be born again. And Nicodemus is just floored by this. At one point, he even says, how can these things be? How, how is this even possible? I mean, I, what more could you possibly give us than the commandments and, and the Torah? What more could you possibly give us than the revelation of God's will and his character? And Jesus says, you are Israel's teacher, and yet you don't understand these things? Then Jesus points him back to one more Old Testament story. He says, the way that you're born again, the way that you're brought into the kingdom of God, the way that you become a member of the family is when this happens. He says that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, so he goes back to a story in the Torah of a time when the people of Israel, after being freed from slavery in Egypt, were wandering through the desert. And they had turned their backs on God. And as a result, these poisonous snakes came into the camp and started biting people, and people were dying. And, and in a moment of mercy, God tells Moses, he says, craft for yourself a bronze snake, lift it up on a pole, and anyone who's been bitten and looks at that snake will be healed and will live. And Jesus said, there's something far more dangerous in the heart of every human person than poisonous serpents. There's a broken relationship with a God. There's this thing called sin. This way in which we have turned our backs on God, preferring to live by our own standards, by our own rules. And he's saying, and you need to be set free from that. You need to be healed and delivered from that death. And Jesus says, and the way that that's going to happen is when the Son of Man, when I am lifted up. And again, we need to understand that, that phrase, that euphemism, because in Jesus' day, when you said someone was lifted up, you were referring to something that was too terrible to actually speak its name. It was referring to crucifixion. Crucifixion, this form of execution performed by the Romans that was so hideous, that was so terrible, that people wouldn't even speak its name. So that when someone was executed by crucifixion, they would simply say he was lifted up. And what Jesus says is he says, 
the way in which you are born again, the way in which you are brought into the kingdom of God, the way in which you receive eternal life is when I am crucified on your behalf. When the punishment that should fall on your shoulders for all the ways in which you've fallen short of God's laws, fallen short of his commandments, turn your backs on him, I will bear that punishment on my shoulders. I will die in your place so that you might be forgiven and have eternal life. Because Jesus was like, you're right, Nicodemus. The laws aren't enough. The scriptures aren't enough. Your language and your history, your own piety and upbringing, your family and your background are not enough. But good news, I am enough. I will die in your place that you might have life eternal. And that gift is for everybody. And I think that that is really, really good news, regardless of what background you come from. Because what it says is it says to have a relationship with God isn't a matter of what family you're born into. Doesn't matter what background you have. Doesn't matter how religiously observant you have or have not been. What it means is that that is good news for every single person on the face of the planet. It means that everyone, regardless of where you come from or what your background is, can know God and can know that God loves you. That's the gift that Jesus gives, that everyone can be a part of the family of God. This gift is so amazing that many other Pharisees, not just Nicodemus, end up becoming followers of Jesus. Because they see in Jesus the fulfillment of all that they had hoped for. In fact, there was another Pharisee who went on to follow Jesus and was willing to follow Jesus even to the point of death. His name was Paul. And Paul was a Pharisee too. And I have to wonder, looking at Paul's background, if maybe he and Nicodemus were classmates. Because they had a lot of things in common. But this is what Paul writes in Philippians 3 about the gift of knowing Jesus. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes, from faith, uh, comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. See, Paul says, Paul was a devout guy. He was a Pharisee. He was a rabbi. And he says, but all those things I count as lost compared to the immeasurable gift of knowing Jesus. Because Paul knew that in Jesus, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is good news for everyone, for Jew and Gentile. For the religiously and morally upright and for those who've messed up. And fallen short. It's a greater gift because it says that anyone, regardless of who you are or where you come from, you can be a member of the family of God through Jesus. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, you can be washed through water and the Spirit. 
You can know God's love and you can walk with him both now and into eternity. In fact, that's what we're celebrating this morning in the waters of baptism. This morning, two families have brought their children here to be baptized. And it's here in baptism that they're given the gift of faith. That they're washed by water and the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit will dwell in their hearts and in their minds both now and into eternity. And what God is saying is he's saying, these kids are my kids. That's the gift that he's giving them this morning. But that's a gift that he's given to all of us who follow Christ as well. And it's a gift that we can give in conversation with people of every background. Jewish, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, agnostic, atheist, spiritual but not religious. So let them know that it's not about you and being perfect. It's not about earning God's love. It's about God's love given to you as a gift through Christ Jesus, your Lord. And so it's in that vein that I want us to pray together. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? God, we give you thanks that you are indeed the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That you are indeed the God who revealed himself to us through the Torah, through the writings, and through the prophets. That you are a God who promised through the lips of prophets that you would one day come to wash us by water and the Spirit, but that you are the God who has now entered in and become one of us through Jesus Christ. And through you, we can know that we are your beloved children. That it's not about our pedigree or our performance, but rather it's a free gift given to us so, Lord, we say thank you for that gift. And we pray that we might humbly and lovingly share that gift with the world, that others who feel like it's got to be about them and their works would know that it actually it's about you and what you've already accomplished. Thank you for that gift of faith. Strengthen our faith and embolden us to go out and to speak it to a world that is thirsty and desperately needs to know of your love, which has come to us through Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about a relationship with Christ or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T-L-C, the number four, and the letter U, dot org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.